thanks a lot for being here. And thank you for being here with Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. This is the next evolution of professional development in higher education. And every week, it's my honor to bring you higher education thought leaders, topics of note, current trends, shows are replayed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, and iHeartRadio Podcasts. I want you to subscribe, rate, and share on your favorite podcast app. Uh, today's show topic, university presidents in Florida, Texas, and other red states are being tested. Some handpicked by governors are doing the bidding of those who appointed them. Some are trying to fight back, and some are seemingly laying low and looking for new jobs while the institutions around them spiral. North Idaho College, a community college with an enrollment of nearly 10,000, is a cautionary tale for what happens when the president speaks up for what's right, faces off against a board of trustees who are squabbling and unqualified, leading to the president's being fired without cause, a lawsuit, a loss of its insurance, uh, coverage, a Moody's downgrade, a mass exodus of executive leadership, and now is on the precipice of losing its accreditation. And we'll have an update on that uh, with news that came in this week. Dr. Rick McLennan is the former president of North Idaho College and is my guest today. So, Rick, thank you for being here. Uh, Rick is a U.S. Army veteran and currently serves as the president of Ventura Community College District, BCCD in California. Uh, he has more than 30 years of experience in ex educational leadership. He was <clears throat> president of North Idaho College in Fort-de-Lis for five years. I'm going to mess that up. I flunked French, Spanish, and every other, uh, <laughs> every other language I could possibly take. Uh, prior to that, he spent six years as president of Garrett College in McHenry, Maryland. And in 2018, North Idaho College was honored as the Entrepreneurial College of the Year by the National Association of Community College Entrepreneurship. Um, he is a Southern California native, and in, he is uh, living now with his family in California. Rick, it is my pleasure to have you here uh, with uh, Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. And uh, I'm going to invite you back up onto the stage uh, so we can start our conversation. All right, there you are. So now that I've done all the talking, uh, talk to us about, uh, now where are you now? Are you out in California right now? I am actually on one of our campuses, so Ventura County Community College District, of which I serve as chancellor. Uh, we're a multi-college campus district. I'm at Oxnard College today, uh, and uh, I'm actually in a conference room, and uh, uh, it's a beautiful day here in Southern California. I'm glad to be here with you. Well, and I'm thrilled to have you here. So thank you so much. Uh, talk to us about you, how you found your way to community college leadership. Um, I understand that your journey, that uh, your journey, and specifically how you found your way to North Idaho, would be really important for us to understand. You are from California. You. Uh, did time in the military. Thank you for your service as a U.S. Army veteran. You've made your way to um, uh, Maryland. But talk to us about how you found your way into community college leadership. So it, it is, you know, like many of us in higher education, the journeys can be pretty long and winding, and mine is uh, really no different than that. Some of the things that you've already mentioned, but I think the most important thing in terms of how I found myself here. Uh, really had to do with my time in Anchorage, Alaska, while I was serving in the Army. I had an opportunity to take some classes uh, while in the service uh, through Anchorage Community College and um, did not, you know, at that time really have any plans to pursue a college degree, uh, but thought that was a good opportunity to see what it was like. I did that. I took those classes. I got out of the Army, entered the workforce. I was uh, destined to be in the wholesale plumbing and electrical supply industry, which was a wonderful uh, field to be in. Uh, but I ultimately found my way back uh, to Portland State University and then on into graduate school and so on. And along the way, it uh, became very clear to me that based on my own experience, what the Anchorage Community College uh, experience led me to being admitted to Portland State University and then my study of higher education at the graduate level and uh, my own experience coming to believe that the rubber really hits the ground at community colleges in terms of transforming lives, changing communities, 
and so on. And so I've spent, uh, as you already mentioned, quite a bit of time in community colleges, twice in Maryland, uh, two community colleges in Maryland. Uh, I was at uh, Olympic College in Bremerton, Washington. Uh, currently at Ventura County Community College District, and uh, but prior to that, North Idaho College. I arrived there in 2016 uh, at what was a very, very strong institution uh, financially. Uh, like any institution, there's things that we always need to be working on. And uh, we were able to put together a really, I would say, stellar administrative leadership team uh, in the spring of 2020, we had our full-scale evaluation visit from the Northwest Commission on Colleges and University. And that was, uh, so four years into my tenure there, uh, we received five commendations. It reaffirmed everything that we had been working on in terms of inclusion, uh, institutional planning, enrollment management, all those things were recognized in that visit. Well, that was in April and then ultimately in June. And then we had the election of 2020. And, and it was immediately within days of the election mm -hmm. of 2020 uh, that um, the college reversed course. Mm. Um, so I, I can you, talk a little bit about that if you want. But. Yeah, so I think it's important for us like to understand the final days of North Idaho. Um, and so like, but I think it, it does provide us context. So like the summer of 2020 was the summer of George Floyd. It was the summer of Black Lives Matter, it was the summer of racial uh, justice uh, uh, folks becoming more in tune with this. Lots of colleges and universities, especially community colleges that are serving, uh, you know, really the broad base of the, of the state and the organizations around them. Um, get involved in this in terms of our students need our support and need to be, you know, feel like they're being seen and heard. And you're the president at that time. And then you have the election in November and, and things I think got really heated. Can you give us an idea of, of kind of what happened between the summer sure. and the fall? Sure. So, and back up just a little bit to the summer of 2020 and, and really the May, June timeframe with George Floyd uh, we had a, have still a very strong uh, diversity council and human rights and social justice uh, agenda at uh, North Idaho College. And uh, our diversity committee came out with a very supportive statement of the right to assemble and supporting the right to assemble. And uh, in that statement mentioned such as groups uh, such as Black Lives Matter. Uh, that was picked up by... Uh, uh, our Republican Central Committee, which is, um, I don't want to, um, you know, get too political on that side of it, but, but it, it was really, uh, you know, is, is very conservative and I would say as far right as you could possibly imagine. Um, that became an issue. What's their role? Are they, are they appointed by the governor? So they're, uh, they're, they're, they are, they're part of the larger state. Uh, uh, political entity. There's a counterpart on the Democrat side, and they're locally elected uh, in precincts and that sort of thing. And they they are the official uh, political arm of the Republican Party in that in that region, in that five county region in North Idaho. And um, and so and and it was already a very conservative delegation from the North Idaho delegation for the state assembly. Uh, and they, many of them began publicly speaking out against North Idaho College uh, for financially supporting Black Lives Matter, mm. which of course we were not, but that was the narrative that got picked up. And when that narrative got picked up, uh, of course, I started receiving uh, what I call love letters, a lot of uh, email uh, from people condemning the college, condemning me for supporting you know, a Marxist, quote, Marxist organization. Uh, and the volume got turned up pretty high on that. And that's ultimately what influenced the uh, November election. The Republican Central Committee stood up candidates to run for the Board of Trustees. Uh, they were successful in gaining three of those seats out of the five. 
Uh, you know, many states are appointed trustees in Idaho. They are elected trustees, as they are in California. And uh, once the new board majority took over, one of the three was an existing trustee uh, who had sat on the edge for the last eight years during his tenure, and is would now you know believed okay he was in power, uh, he was elected chair of the board, and uh, the entire tenor and direction of the institution shifted at that point. Now, when you say the entire tenor of the institution, so what you had said previously is that the institution was in great uh, financial health, it was getting awards, there was no issues with its accreditation, there was good leadership, there seemed to be, you know, Idaho, I'm gonna say this, and it's gonna come from a very East Coast point of view, okay? Is that Idaho is not necessarily a state that people look to and go, you know what, that's, that's a destination. This is a place where once you get some really good executive leaders, you want to hang on to them um, and you want people to know how to serve a rural community and an environment with that <clears throat> specific need. So your executive leadership team at that point, did, how was the turnover factor? Did you seem to have a pretty uh, a rock steady group or were they was yeah, it a would... door or how was it? Not at all. Not at all. And, you know, I, I put this in a geographic perspective. Coeur d'Alene, Idaho is uh, about a half hour east of Spokane, Washington. So in that panhandle area of, uh, of uh, Idaho and eastern Washington, you have a population of about 500,000 people. So it's not, it, there are rural aspects to it, but it is very much metropolitan and uh, certainly uh, you have uh, Western Washington uh, University, the Washington State University, University of Idaho, the Community Colleges of Spokane, uh, multi-college district, and then North Idaho College, and some private institutions in there as well. So it's not it's not exactly uh, purely a rural uh, place, and there's a lot of talent in the area and a lot of competition for talent in higher education leadership. And we were really super fortunate to have, I, I, I've said this, uh, one of the best administrative teams I've ever uh, had the privilege of serving. Uh, and uh, we were definitely ascendant. There's no question about that. So. Wow. And, and that's where, you know, I know from my own experience that when you leave a very capable team under duress, um, it makes it even harder. It's one thing when you are working with people who you're like, well, you know what, we weren't, they weren't all that good at their job, so who cares? But it's another story altogether when you look back and go, this was a really capable team who really wanted to do good work. We were clicking on all cylinders. And then an external force, specifically in your case, this uh, trustee situation, created an untenable situation. So now let's turn our attention to what happened after eight, after uh, November 2020 when this elected board comes in and has continued this narrative that this uh, that the that the college itself is this kind of hotbed of Marxism and uh, some of these uh, issues that they find to be um, against their their fortitude, so to speak. Um, how did this all kind of play out and how did you get pulled into this and, and how did you kind of position yourself for this fight against the, the trustees? Yeah, that's a great question. The, you know, I, I, I'll start this way. The, um, and then I'm going to get to the answer, but generally when, when I think people's reactions to what was happening with the new board. Uh, was pretty predictable. Um, I've, I've experienced this before myself. You have a new board member who comes in. In this case, we had two new board members who are there to fix something that's broken. Uh, and we know that once they get acclimated to us and understand the organization and the issues and, and the realities of how policies develop and those sort of things, that they're going to moderate. Right. Um, it was clear to me from the very beginning, I received a phone call, for example, from the, uh, uh, the, the one of the three who had been on the board, who is now the board chair. And 
he was um, he was a little upset that I hadn't called to congratulate him on winning his election, and I, I had never I had never uh, called the trustee to congratulate them on their election, let alone one who ran unopposed, which he had run unopposed. So there was really no. Uh, and in that first conversation, <laughs> yeah, and in that, in that first conversation, you know, it was, he made it pretty clear that uh, you and I are going to be meeting on a weekly basis. I'm going to be giving you your marching orders. Uh, things are going to change. And I said, you know, his name's Todd, Todd Banducci. I said, Todd, that's not the way this is going to work. Uh, you're one of five board members. You don't truly exist outside of the board. Uh, and uh, I have not only in state law, but in contract and contract language op operational authority for the campus. So to to position yourself as, as if you're going to have operational control and direct my activities, it, it just isn't going to work. And at that point, he, and this was a long conversation, but he said something like, oh, yeah, you're right. The board only has one employee. I guess we're going to have to go down that route, which obviously meant um, you know, we're going to get rid of you at some point. Mm -hmm. It became, uh, there was, a, and this is all reported in the media through the Chronicle of Higher Education and some other things that are out there, but he, he uh, bulleted five rapid emails to me on, uh, in mid-January. And I looked at these emails, and, and one of them had to do with a student who had uh, led the Pledge of Allegiance at our commencement ceremony in, in the spring and she left out under God because she was for whatever reason she did not feel comfortable saying under God in the Pledge of Allegiance and um, uh, he picked that up and, and one of the emails was admonishing me to make sure that that never happened again and uh, you know I, I, I really didn't want to be in a position to constrain somebody's speech that way but that was just one of them and I I read these five emails and I, I talked with my wife uh, a little bit about it. And, um, you know, I said, I, I'm going to really have to take this on yeah. and, and taking that on meant communicating to the full board, my concerns about the trustee and the approach he was taking in terms of the intention of intervening in operations. And then some of the directions that were coming about that I found, uh, you know, wrong, that, uh, he, uh, even if the full board had said we need you to make sure students don't uh, leave out under God, um, I would have had a problem with the full board at that point. Uh, my wife and I talked about it, and uh, you know, she actually said this is really a pretty easy decision. You, you really only got one way to go, and, and that's convey the you know your feelings to the full board, let them understand what's happening, and and give them an opportunity to intervene. Uh, on this, uh, on the behavior. And that uh, email that I wrote, and again, that's all been very well documented, is yep. really what set the ships in motion in terms of it, it, it actually, uh, it was sort of like uh, maybe throwing down the gauntlet, I guess, from their perspective. Uh, there's uh, quotes in the media about uh, the board saying that they needed to root out the deep liberal state, that, um, you know, that, that, uh, um, uh, expression was being stifled for conservative for conservative students, you know, things like that. But it was that exchange of communication that really then said, okay, it was clear to the board at that point that that this president was not going to uh, jump in line. And, and the decision point for me became pretty easy. Uh, you know, it's like a lot of things. Once you decide, you can live with the worst possible outcome. For me personally, not for the institution which was, you know, lose, losing my job at some point. I knew that was going to be the, uh, the case. Everything else got pretty easy for me at that point in terms of my engagement with the board. I had two objectives. Uh, they were to um, hold them accountable for their role, their legal role as trustees. Yep. And the second was to make them do everything in public. And, uh, and so you know, I was successful in uh, doing that. And then the third thing I'll mention with the leadership team and, and uh, the anxiety that, that the sort of uh, dynamic plays in an institution, uh, and there was a lot of anxiety. Uh, uh, I wanted to make it clear to my, my leadership team and to the campus that the board had 
one employee, and that was me. And I was going to be visibly engaged this way. It was going to be very difficult, but I, I really wanted them to continue to do the work that they needed to do around student success and fulfilling our mission. And I think from about, you know, from January until I was uh, finally uh, terminated in late September of 2021, uh, we were able to achieve that. So, and, and that's, you know, I'm going to say this, Rick, is that it's, it's very hard to lead a university. It is harder to lead under duress but there is an element that you were able to harness here, which is that you said, we are going to continue to do the work we were brought here to do. And the people who were elected on party lines to be our trustees who are, and I'm gonna ask you this question about their qualifications, because based on the communications that you and I had uh, as we were setting up this, this, uh, this interview, and in my and in my research, these are not people who have a background in education, nor are they at all qualified to be overseeing education. I want when those kind of people come in, who have a specific political agenda, have a specific, shall we say, disinformation-fed kind of viewpoint of life, and your decision to lead by what is your ethical and your moral obligation to the institution, that takes a lot. And I think that the people who are around you are going to be more positioned to at least say, okay, he's got as much on the line as we do. In fact, he's got more because he's the one who's gonna be the first to go down. Um, how did you feel at times when you were working with this board? And when I say working with is a pretty you know, broad statement, but as you're being dictated by this board and you're pushing back, did you see anything in their kind of actions that went to a value of the educational um, product for the student, that you have 10,000 students at, at this institution? Did they care about the education or was it this all political stunt? Yeah, boy, there's a lot in that question. Uh, you know, I'm going uh, to go to the board composition itself and their background and their, I guess, qualifications. You know, I've worked with uh, many boards uh, throughout my long, uh, you know, career, and I've never once evaluated a trustee based on how much their experience aligned with mine. Um, you know, working class, retired, uh, it, the current board I have uh, now at Ventura is, uh, it has four either retired or current educators on it. So there's some, a uh, little more alignment maybe there in terms of the learning curve that goes into it and, and uh, maybe the value proposition that uh, it takes less explaining. But I've always approached it from the perspective that it's my job, especially as president, to help uh, the story that we have in our institution get connected to the story of the trustee so they can see themselves in our institution. And, and again, I said that earlier that, that there, uh, there's a, a sort of a normal expectation that once they know us, they will come to love us and they will appreciate the processes that are in place to get the work done. But if, but if, and in this case, this was the case, if you're antagonistical, if you're, if you're, if you're anti the values of what our education system is, you know, designed to provide, and I'll, and I'll back up one more. This Republican Central Committee is backed by an organization called the uh, Idaho Freedom Foundation. The Idaho Freedom Foundation, it sounds really benign, is uh, funded by uh, a lot of outside of Idaho dollars to, and their, to do, and their number one goal is to dismantle public education. Right. Um, they would like to see not one public dollar going to fund public education. And so, 
you know, I've, I've, I've talked about these trustees, these three anyway, as really anti-trustees because, you know, uh, when you think of the role of a trustee, it's really advocacy, it's fiduciary, uh, it is, it is uh, mission supportive and everything that goes with that. And uh, not, none of the actions that have been taken by this group uh, have pointed towards any value of the mission of the institution to the extent that today, and, and you know from recent things that we'll probably talk about, um, it, it's now become clear, as much as I tried to help people understand, you know, almost two years ago, that, that and, and in the words of one of the trustees, I'm going to go scorched earth on the college, that their intent has from the very beginning been to tear the institution down. For what end, uh, that remains uh, unclear to a lot of people. Um, I think uh, as I've come to know uh, uh, this element, uh, it's really coming from a, uh, a bad, how do we get our values yeah. to become this institution's values? And, and, and those values are uh, uh, very, uh, very much connected with religion and they're very much connected with a, uh, a sort of a, uh, a version of, uh, of I just lost you. Um, you said uh, connected to religion and then connected to something else and I lost you and I see that you've frozen. So hopefully we'll get you back. invited Rick back to video hopefully the glitch comes out and I want to make sure we return to that point that he had about um, there you are um, so all good Rick where I lost you you were talking about the trustees and their commitment to religion and I would have to say is probably uh, evangelical Christian if I if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah. And then there was another value that they were trying to align the institution with. What was that? Um, and that would be a very uh, sort of a um, singular view of society that involves uh, anything but diversity. So no, uh, no inclusion of diverse perspectives or diverse people. And, and, you know, as a community college, we literally build our sidewalks out to serve everybody. Uh, and, uh, and, it, and, and so there's a diversity and inclusion and personified in an educational. Exactly. Program. So, yeah, so they were, um, they were, and they remain, um, you know, convinced that they have a better vision of the future for this institution. What I, what I tried to get them to understand, and, and they, they really, and this is, this is a challenge with, um, elected boards sometimes. It's a dynamic that's set up in that they're voted in, and so the, politi the, the political aspect of that means they have um, con constituents. And if they're if they're in zones, if they're elected in a zone, they may even have a geographic constituency that's different from the district as a whole. Um, these five, these three trustees truly viewed their their marching orders as the marching orders of the voters that put them into office. I tried to help them understand uh, from the beginning that they were at large trustees, that they represented everybody in our community and that we had, uh, it may, they may not understand it, but I really wanted them to understand the connection between the department of education and the regional accrediting body uh, to the extent that, you know, you may not see it, but it's an iron clad, iron cable connection to the accrediting body and we are accountable to them. And so while you, you may need to balance your, your idea of what your constituents want, you also have to understand the standards of accreditation and the uh, accountability requirements that we have to these external bodies. <coughs> it's been um, pretty clear uh, as uh, to where the, the institutions ended up today. 
but they are still not buying into the idea that these external bodies have any authority or control uh, over them. Uh, as you know, the institution's on show cause right now, which means they've literally walked the cliff and they're, they're uh, to this date even still uh, not acknowledging the, uh, the credible power of the, uh, of the uh, accrediting body. Right, right. The, so I'm going to play a clip. Um, this is about two and a half minutes uh, from the news this week out of uh, North Idaho. Uh, it's one of the local uh, stations that's been covering this matter. And um, I want to ask you, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this uh, when, we're, when this is over. Specifically, I want us to be talking about, there are, there are states right now, Florida, Texas, there's many. Um, they may not be elected boards, but these are boards that are not qualified or uh, are specifically appointed by, by governors who want an agenda and are also being funded by the same organizations that you outlined previously. If we look at what's happening in Florida, it's a very good example of how the state institutions are getting torn apart um, and uh, are being uh, put through an agenda kind of uh, leadership. So this is from uh, local news out of North Idaho. And it's very chaotic to see. While pushing for answers tonight, a very heated meeting over the actions of North Idaho College that some fear might be the final strike and potentially losing accreditation. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. I'm Morgan Ashley. That meeting went on for more than two and a half hours tonight. We're told people were shouting and expressing their fear. John Webb was at that meeting for us. John, tell us exactly what happened. A lot happened. It was a saber-rattling night, a lot of public outbursts, and even more disagreement among board members. Now, with three recesses, two and a half hours, and bickering back and forth, not much was accomplished. The meeting began with the board chair, Greg McKenzie, attempting to censure trustee Brad Corkle for allegedly releasing the McCumber investigation to the public. The board debated the issue and ultimately voted against the censorship. The next order of business was the attorney's investigation into President Nick Swain's contract. Todd Banducci recommending to release the report, the board later voting to send it out unredacted tomorrow by 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Now tonight, possibly the most difficult to understand was the board's vote to cure an open meeting violation back in 2022. That was in February. The specific meeting was when the board hired President Swain. According to state code, any governing body can only cure a violation within 30 days of that specific meeting. If that, in fact, is the case, that vote would not hold any merit. Now, the last item on the agenda causing even more confusion and threatened the power of the president. Todd Venducci proposed the board's involvement in the hiring of high-level positions. Discussion went off and on, and eventually a lot trail before board chair Greg McKenzie made a motion for the board chair to approve certain and hires the president makes. President Nick Swain, sitting visibly frustrated, said that this would cause the institution to lose its accreditation. Trustee Terry Zimmerman agreed and was worried that they were violating yet another open meeting law. All right, so the, the uh, report continues to kind of spiral down here, and if you watch the actual video, you see the uh, president uh, who's currently at the institution rubbing his head, and he is clearly uh, quite concerned. So this individual who's now the president, where, where did he come from? So he, uh, I, I don't know his full background. I think he came from Virginia most recently. Uh, he's certainly got all the qualifications and credentials to be president. There was a little bit of a blip in the, uh, in the timeline here where uh, the existing board, uh, when I was uh, on, on board, uh, became uh, one, one person needed to drop off because they were no longer eligible. And there was a, so it was a 2-2 board at that point. And, um, Obviously, they couldn't get anything done. This was after I had been fired. 
so the two who I would say were the responsible trustees um, resigned, which forced the State Board of Idaho of Education to step in and appoint three new trustees. They appointed three very credible, responsible trustees who then uh, went through the process of bringing uh, President Nick Swain on board. Uh, and, and that's where they are now. Uh, they've they've uh, since then, because the state board appointed those three trustees, they had to stand for election in November. The Republican Central Committee, again, only needed to win one of those three positions to regain board majority, and they did. And they immediately put President Swain on administrative leave to investigate the conditions of his contract. There was an injunction, a judge... Uh, 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 commanded the trustees to reinstate President Swain. Uh, and so this latest action is an action to say, well, we're just going to null and void his contract entirely. That means there's nothing to cure if a, if a contract never existed. Meanwhile, while this meeting's taking place two nights ago, today, the accrediting body, the, uh, the evaluation team is on campus interviewing uh, the trustees and everybody involved in this. And I can't think of anything, uh, you know, again, if, if the premise of trying to tear the institution down is actually true, then it would make sense that they've, that they've behaved this way this week uh, in light of uh, being on show cause and with the accrediting body coming, coming in. And how's the community responding to this? How are the people who are uh, actually there, enrolled, parents, businesses, yeah. well, how are people responding to this? Well, you can imagine it's pretty devastating for a lot of people. Unfortunately, everybody's living their lives. And as this issue has been evolving over the last year and a half or so, some people would get interested and it would make it in the newspaper. People would say, oh, there's smoke over at North Idaho College. The president got fired, you know, whatever. But I don't think people, it, it, public interest to the level that it needs to actually affect positive change tends to lag the events that are causing that need. And uh, the public reaction right now is pretty significant. It's a, the, a lot of people are up in arms and really upset about this. Uh, but unfortunately, um, they, it's so far down the road with this accrediting uh, issue. You know, and frankly, the, these are elected positions, you know, so you could do a recall election. But like most states, it's an incredibly high hurdle to get over. I mean, it, it would be, I would say, more of a chance that it wouldn't succeed than it, than it would. Uh, the legislature isn't intervening. So really the only mechanism, and I think this is going to be true for most institutions that are starting to face these sort of things, whether you're talking about Texas, as you mentioned, certainly Florida is a little bit different with it coming from the governor's office. Uh, North Idaho College really was a canary, is a canary in the coal mine. Um, and I, I was asked recently about, well, what do you think the role of the accrediting bodies should be in this? And, and I, I, I've been an, uh, an accreditor for, you know, I mean, I've been a part of that process for a long time. I, I truly think that it's really the only mechanism we have uh, to deal with this as long as board governance, institutional governance is considered part of the standard evaluation, the, the evaluation of uh, standards for an institution's um, accountability and accreditation then really the accrediting body, the regional accrediting associations are the ones that are going to have to step in. And I think they're not equipped to do that right now in the time frame that's needed to actually help an institution. I know they want to help, uh, but they have, they have some pretty time lengthy processes to get there. Uh, and again, here you have an institution that really needed help a lot, a lot sooner. They, they've been watching this from the very beginning. Um, and, and, you know, last thing an accrediting, a regional accrediting body wants to do is to have an institution become unaccredited. Accredited. They want to help that institution. They want them to get their act together to find a way to meet these standards. But when you have the active leadership in the trustees and their governance role and responsibility, not buying into that accrediting body's authority to have any standards over their, over their behavior, over their, uh, the way they uh, fulfill their role, 
um, it's going to break. And that's exactly where North Idaho is right now. And, and it's, you know, these accreditation, uh, these accreditors uh, have to start to step in and, and have these conversations and, and say, look, if you're not moving into these, these, if you're not living up to the standards and you're not performing up to the standards that we have set in terms of being a, a, an institution that meets our accrediting standards, we need to, to cut ties. Yeah. And <clears throat> that is going to create um, not only a brain drain uh, in communities, it's not going to only create a skill drain in communities. I'm thinking um, of Texas, for instance, which is a state that has um, <clears throat> entire parts of the, the community or a part, a, a entire municipalities, counties, etc., that are literally with a handful of doctors and nurses. They don't have medical personnel in some of these communities. And now you're creating an environment in that state because of a variety of reasons that people either A, don't want to go there to get training as medical personnel, um, or B, don't want to go there for their, um, you know, uh, they don't want to actually go there for education or for placement. And now you're going to end up with communities with no services. When you're looking at Idaho, where you were training um, and educating folks to do specific things to help the community and to help the local economy and to live better lives, and people are turning around going, wait, hold on a second. I thought Northern Idaho, North Idaho was able to provide this. Now I can't do this here anymore. I can't get this education yep. here anymore because of something the government did. Yeah. That's going to, I hope that is going to create um, a, a little bit of a turnaround <clears throat> where people go, wait, hold up a second. Um, this isn't about saying under God during the Pledge of Allegiance. This is about being able to train people who can do X, Y, Z and help our local economy and fill jobs. And, and that, I think, will make people pay attention. Your comment about North Idaho being a canary in a coal mine has, was something that um, sparked this thought in my head, is that as I've been tracking this, I feel like it's flying under the radar. It is a, uh, a canary in a coal mine because it is not a high visibility space. Um, and we have a bias in higher education. Right now, you're in California. There's a lot of attention being played in California on education and higher education. Um, I'm in New England. We have a very specific kind of view of the world in terms of where institutions are. But I will also say one of the things that makes this uh, fly underneath the radar is that it's a community college. And in higher education, community colleges are considered a particular type of institution. Yep. And People at four-year institutions are not always paying attention to the realities, strife, and day-to-day um, -day challenges that might be happening on a community college campus, and they dismiss them because they don't understand the value of the campus. Boy, that is so true. I, I um, the the impact any loss of accreditation. So, our uh, North Idaho College's nursing program. Any of the specialized accredited programs will cease to be accredited once the uh, regional accreditation is removed as well. Uh, the workforce development, the connection to business and industry uh, across all sectors is, uh, it will be immediately felt. And it's unfortunate because all through, uh, what I've really enjoyed about my higher education experience in a community college is that Republicans and Democrats have loved us equally. We have, we have never had this politicization, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, but this is part of the culture wars that we're in now. It's part of the, uh, the fabric of uh, uh, whatever you want to call it. It's, I wouldn't call it a conversation. I'd call it more of a shouting match, but um, it's certainly part of it. And part of the playbook of uh, the Idaho Freedom Foundation and other organizations in this culture war space, uh, take over the local boards, take over the library board, take over the city council, take over the school boards, 
and now the community college boards. And there are, you know, there are a lot of rural community colleges that are starting to get to this. I, I think we're still extreme North Idaho College based on the personalities of, of some of them, but I don't, I don't think it's going to be alone. I think it's going to be uh, something that's going to, uh, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And, and if, if I were giving anybody any advice or even myself advice, the version of me, uh, you know, at the very beginning of this, uh, I've always treated, irrespective of a, a trustee's point of view, perspective, philosophy, political leaning, or whatever, I've always treated them with the respect of the office that they hold uh, as a trustee. Uh, I may not agree with them, and certainly I am very comfortable, I've always been comfortable uh, acknowledging that disagreement respectfully and being able to, you know, work through it. But I do think that... Um, uh, that the role of a president or a chancellor, in my case, uh, actively helping the board develop. Right. Even, I'm not sure it would help this particular board, but I honestly don't think that um, we do it. We, we do board workshops. You know, there is an onboarding for usually most colleges will have an onboarding for a trustee, make sure they understand kind of how policies are made and that sort of thing. Uh, but I really do think that, uh, as I'm thinking about it in my role now, that the active development of a trustee and reinforcing the board, uh, the board role and their responsibility um, <clears throat> at every step of the way is going to be, uh, you know, really important because uh, this thing just, it went from one direction to a completely another direction um, overnight. Again, I'm not sure that any board development would have helped, um, but it, it, it it may have. The, I think that the thing that you said earlier about your nursing students that are at North Idaho, about um, people who are there to get certain trainings in certain fields, what's breaking my heart right now is there's folks who have made a decision to enroll at the community college some of them are traditional age college students. Some of them, I'm sure, are, are uh, non-traditional age, whether yep. they be veterans, whether they be people who may have started out their lives, you know, maybe a, a woman who said, you know, I'm going to have children first and then maybe I'll go back to school. Or career changers who said, you know what, I'm done with this. I want to try something new. And they have put their faith in um, what is considered the public good, which is public education. And they came here and they said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to become a nurse. I'm going to become a, a riveter. I'm going to become, a, you know, I'm going to get into green energy. I'm going to do whatever it might be, but this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to start my own business and I need to know how to do accounting. I need to do these things because I've decided I'm going to start my own, my own, I'm going to hang out a shingle and I'm going to do my own thing. But what has happened now is there is going to be 10,000 people who had a track and that track will be ripped out from underneath them and their ability to do the work they chose to do will be taken away because of the actions of a handful of people well-funded by individuals who want to bring down what is the promise of higher education, public higher education in this country? I, I can't add anything to that. That's exactly what's happening. It is, it is appalling. Um, to your point, we need to start to pay attention to not only who's coming in, but commit ourselves to saying we are going to be the voices People who are in executive leadership need to be the voices. I um, interviewed a few weeks ago Walter Kimbrough, who is a former HBCU president, and he was talking about DEI and how um, he has actually made a call to presidents at institutions in some of these states that are being evaluated and said, how many, you know, how much of your budget is going towards DEI? Your answer should be 100%. That's your answer. And I said, amen. That is absolutely your answer. 
when when we are being challenged as to what how much of our budget is going towards diversity, equity, and inclusion, and bringing in people who are, you know, uh, not of uh, you know white Anglo-Saxon Protestant <laughs> kind of makeup, it's like. That's our role. That's what we are here to do. That is our mission. Yeah. That is that is our doctrine. That's why we exist. Absolutely. It's, it's bonkers to me. Uh, I know that we're coming up on the end, and I know we um, I know we we're going a little over uh, our original time. But I wanted to ask you one last question. Sure. Is that when you look at all of this? And if you were to be able to take take a phone call from any president at any institution right now, and they were to ask you, is there anything in the last 18 months of your career at North Idaho that you wish you had known now, or then, that you know now? What would it have been? Like, if there's something about your leadership in terms of being able to position the institution on your way out, you knew you were going. Is there anything you would have done differently on your way out the door to have maybe positioned the institution so that the public, the people that were being served, or possibly the trustees could have at least gotten like a little earworm of truth so that as you were on your way out the door, at least you know you left another nugget that may have been beneficial on your way out? You know, that's a... That's a very fair question. Um, I don't think that, that any nugget I would have had to have offered. Um, certainly, I didn't leave anything on the table with the trustees about what I, what I thought. I, I, my approach with, with them, even in the worst of the conflict, was to try to help them get out of it, to show them something, to show them another way. I would use imagery like... Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're walking down a trail and there's going to be a little sign that pops up and says, if you keep going this way, um, you're going to get into trouble. And based on what I'm saying, we're going to blow right by that sign and we're going to come to another one that's going to say, hey, remember that sign back there? We really meant it. You need to, you need to stop and turn around and we're going to blow by that one too. And you're going to come to one that's at the edge of a cliff that says, if you take one more step, you're going to take the institution with you. And that's where they are right now. I made it really, really clear. Every analogy, every conversation about the, the, uh, the impact of what was happening and where, where it would potentially lead, not just with the trustees, but with the foundation board, with members of the, uh, with local government, within the community. I, I, I really tried to help people understand what I was seeing. Um, as far as, you know, advice that I would give to myself, uh, looking back over that, I had a good friend of mine tell me uh, in a whole other industry that uh, he had had a situation where he had been forced out of a, of a position and uh, he had knew it was coming, it was expected, uh, but, but he was pretty angry about it afterwards. And he was cautioning me that, you know, as much as you intellectually know what you're going through right now, and you've made the decisions to control your part of the narrative with a known outcome that you've accepted, all that's really well and good. But I can tell you, you're going to really struggle with this, maybe not the first day or the second day after you leave, but at some point it's, it's going to hit you. And I, I remember saying, I'm going to be fine. I know I've accepted this. I've already put it to bed what's going to happen. Uh, so the advice I would give to myself is don't be that naive because it takes a lot of energy uh, when you're involved in that kind of conflict for a long period of time. It can take a toll on your health. Uh, certainly your relationships around you, they don't understand fully what you're going through uh, and how intense the conflict is. I include my spouse in that, although she's been nothing uh, but supportive. I don't know the answer to what advice I would give me, but I would say Think through that a little bit more about your own self-care. Make sure that you're connected with people who are going to support you in the field in terms of, you know, other presidents and, and whatnot. But I, I can't think of anything that I, uh, that I really left on the table that I would have done differently. Once I made the decision to not go along with 
you know, I think there's two roads. One would be to appease and say, okay, I'm going to, I'm just going to cut off a little bit of my soul every day to try to make this work or, you know, draw a line and say, these are some boundaries that are, that you're, that you've crossed that are unacceptable and, and we've got to find a better way forward. Um, and I don't know that I would change that. I, I don't think I, at least as far as I know me, I, I couldn't have done it differently. And I suspect that, that there's a lot of folks who are in roles that I am, you know, right now. I was fortunate that I was at a stage in my career where I could financially step away and, and not have to worry about my kids in college, you know, and that sort of thing. I'd like to think that my decision wouldn't have been any different had that been the case. But I know that does weigh on on some people's minds in terms of, um, you know, the security of the position and, and, you know, all the things that obviously we're doing this work because we love it, but we're also getting paid to do it. And, and there's, you know, your livelihood and all that that's connected to it as well. So I understand that. And uh, I was in a little bit of a different position maybe than many people that um, that part of the consequence wasn't as much of an issue for me as it could have been for, you know, would be for other people. I appreciate you talking about the mental uh, impact and the emotional impact it, it would have. Um, any kind of incident like this would be traumatic. And I think sometimes from a leadership standpoint, anytime you're in a crisis, I've taught crisis management. And <clears throat> I always say to people, like when the crisis is over, if you're the one managing it, you better damn well be sure you get yourself some help because you can't, you know, you can't make it through and just go crisis to crisis to crisis to crisis and think this is okay. You're you're a veteran of, uh, you know, the Army, the U.S. Army. You know about trauma. You know about the experiences. But this was a unique one because what this does is it undermines you in terms of your chosen vocation, your passion, your desires in terms of what you're doing to help people have better lives and to live to a certain mission and vision of an institution. And when you are being told by the outside world that what you do is somehow wrong and they're gaslighting everyone around you to think this is a bad place. Hold up a second. We are literally winning awards. We are literally leading the pack in terms of what we should be doing on a community college campus. And you are creating an alternative <clears throat> narrative. And that is a different kind of trauma because you are facing your own your, your own um, foes head on while at the same time you're being um, fighting. You are being pushed back against. Right? Yeah, I think, the, I think the, the hardest thing in all of this was knowing my exit would come. Right of course, and accepting that. Um, but then everybody who remained now was doing so without me there. Right. And, That's hard. And, and they were vulnerable. And there were some really, you know, some, you know, and so, <clears throat> you know, to see the turnover and see their livelihoods uh, upended and uh, it's, it's really, you know, I, yes, I've moved on, and I and I'm really am enjoying where I am now, and I'm with this wonderful uh, experience that I thought I would never have, uh, and that's all really good. But I am deeply saddened for uh, my professional colleagues, for the community that I got to know, and obviously the the students that are, uh, you know, they're 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 just going to be felt wide widely through this community. I think they'll come back. But I think, yeah. for, I think they're going to have to kind of go down to the ground, and and then hopefully the community figures it out. It's a wonderful institution. I hope I hope they make it. I hope so too. Um, I really I I'm really uh, honored that you spent some time with us today, Rick. And I would love to have you back and have another conversation um, at another time, and maybe bring in another university president who might be going through some of the same things and think, see, yeah, that'd be great. actually, uh, provide these conversations because I think we need to be more vocal. And I think we need to use our public relations arms better about what the value of these institutions are. And when they're taken away, what that's actually going to mean for our communities and for our students. 
So I want to thank you, Rick. I want to invite everyone back. Uh, we have uh, some great shows coming up. Next week is our May Think Tank. Um, it is on uh, Wednesday, May the 2nd uh, at 12 noon Eastern time. I'll be joined by uh, some returning think tank folks, Dr. Corey Davis, Dr. Jason Pina, and uh, Beth Grampetro. And we will be talking about all kinds of current issues. And we will uh, make sure that we have a nice, lively conversation. And then coming up uh, over the month of May and into June, uh, the good people at <clears throat> excuse me, at Brian Transfer Publications are coming, and we are going to be talking about three uh, areas, unpacking financial disincentives, why and how this uh, stigma of uh, degree acceptable credit mobility and equitable transfer outcomes. Um, we are going to be talking about affordability of disconnects, uh, understanding student affordability in the transfer and credit mobility era, and finally, we're going to talk about uh, leveraging accreditation and its influence on transfer and credit mobility. So there's going to be three shows, all with our friends from Beyond Transfer. I'm really excited about that, and I hope you join us. So here we are. This is Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. Uh, this is a live broadcast and podcast that comes out every week uh, on the Fireside Network. Um, it is, uh, I am your host, Dr. Laura DeVoe, and I want to thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to my newsletter, What's Up in the Academy, on the Substack platform. It is the number one higher education newsletter on that platform. Follow me here on Fireside, on LinkedIn, on Post, and uh, you will find all my links to subscribe in the notes. So thank you, everybody. Have a great day and get on out there and learn something. Thank you, Rick, and thank you, everybody, for being here. All right. Take care.